We are catching back up this morning with the Israelites in the early stages of their conquest of the land of Canaan, the land of promise. God promised the land on oath many years before to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now he has brought them up out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and he has worked miraculously so that they have crossed over the Jordan River and into the promised land on dry ground, and they have won great military victories at Jericho and at Ai, and there will be many more military engagements and conquests in the days ahead. And this may be a good point at which we should pause for just a few moments and address this whole bit about the military conquests in the book of Joshua and the uncomfortability some of us may feel in reading not only about war in the Bible, but about war being waged at the express command of God. If you've grown up your whole life reading the accounts of the Old Testament, if you were taught as a child in Sunday school about the battles of Jericho and Ai, then this portion of the Bible with its battles and its bloodshed and its vanquished kings being hanged on trees, if you've grown up with your whole, your whole life with the Bible, this particular violent section of it may not seem all that startling to you, but if you're relatively new to the Bible, or if you just can allow yourself this morning to stand back for a few minutes with me from your familiarity with the Bible, you may find that this portion of the scriptures is somewhat challenging even disturbing, because what we have in the book of Joshua is essentially holy war. War being waged at the express commandment of God. And that notion doesn't fit very comfortably with the modern Western mindset, nor with the mindset of the New Testament, from which so many of our Western ethical conceptions have arisen. And so the violence in the book of Joshua raises some important questions that I'd like us just to pause and consider before we go on reading. How can God command something in the Old Testament that seems so expressly different from what we find Jesus commanding on the pages of the New? Here we are this morning having been been taught Jesus' words about loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us and turning the other cheek. And here's the same God in the book of Joshua commanding Joshua to utterly destroy the people of Canaan. Here we are this morning, having been told to go out and make disciples of all the nations, and here Joshua is told to make destruction of them. And so we may wonder, what gives? Is Jesus somehow more compassionate than the Father, or did God change his mind or his character somewhere between the Testaments, or is it that the Old Testament is not really an accurate representation of what God is like? And that if we really want to know the mind of God, we have to sort of overlook the old and really just concentrate on the red letters of the New Testament. Well, in answer to that first question of whether Jesus is more compassionate than his Father, Jesus' answer would be, in the words of John 10, very simply, I and the Father are one. And in answer to the second about whether God has somehow changed since the days of Joshua, we need only cite the words of Malachi 3, I, the Lord, do not change. And concerning the idea that the New Testament might somehow be a more accurate representation of God than the Old, we must simply say with Paul that all Scripture is inspired by God which of course means that all scripture is accurate, both in its history and in what it teaches us about the Almighty. So we can't write off the violence of the Old Testament this morning simply by resorting to the quick and easy solutions of pop culture. The God who commands the slaughter in the book of Joshua is the same God about whom we read in the New Testament, sending his son. Indeed, As we saw in the final verses of this book, chapter 5, it would appear that Jesus himself, Christ himself, came down to command Joshua's army in the battle at Jericho. And so what gives? What do we say about the God-ordained holy war that we find in Joshua's annals? We can't say that it's somehow different than the God of the new. What can we say? Well, First of all, we need to remember that while God is 
certainly the same God in the days of both Joshua and Jesus. He is, however, unfolding a very different portion of his plan in the book of Joshua than he is, for instance, in the book of John. God has always had one great plan for the ages to redeem sinful men, women, boys, and girls by the incarnation and the sinless life and the sacrificial death and the resurrection and the return of his son. That's always been God's plan, but in order to bring that plan about in his perfect time and in his perfect way, there were many preliminary steps to be taken along the way. And one of the most crucial portions of that process was for God to set apart a people as holy to himself, a holy nation, as they're called in Exodus 19, and then to sit them down in this particular geographic location where God would further prepare them for the coming of the Messiah who would be born into their ethnic family tree. The Messiah who is coming into the world to redeem for God people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation was born into a particular tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so the reason for all the warfare in the book of Joshua is to set that particular nation down upon the parcel of land that God had ordained for the coming of his son into the world. That's why Joshua and his men are taking the land of Canaan. But someone may ask, okay, God has ordained that his son would be born in Bethlehem, raised in Galilee, crucified, buried, and raised in Jerusalem. I get all that. I understand why the Jews needed to live on this particular piece of ground, but why did God have to move the Canaanites out so violently? Why didn't he just cause them to move? to pick up stakes like Abraham and to go to another place that God would show them why all the bloodshed and the slaughter of all these innocent Canaanites. Well, the thing is that the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all the people who lived in this land of promise weren't innocent people. In fact, just listen to how the Lord describes the inhabitants of Canaan and how he explains their fate in the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you, for the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought punishment, its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants." It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And so not only were these people living on the land that God had marked out for the unfolding of his messianic purposes, but they were defiling it with their wickedness, and so they were not innocent bystanders rolled over by a cruel general, Joshua, and his men. They were detestable idolaters who fell under the righteous judgment of Almighty God, their Creator. And that should strike fear into our hearts in contemporary America. Because while our land does not have the signal place in God's plan of redemption that the land of Canaan had, we as a nation have certainly, like the Canaanites before us, defiled the land that God has given to us with the blood of the slaughtered unborn and with the gross immorality that's paraded on every newsstand and available on every type of screened device, with the financial dishonesty and lack of integrity that are so much the norm for so many people, with our idolatry of sports and entertainment and possessions while so much of the world languishes in poverty. The list could go on and on, couldn't it? We as a land and as a people are ripe for God's judgment too. And so if our foreign debts are someday called in and our land is someday overtaken by another international superpower, or if nuclear missiles come raining down upon our city so that they go up in smoke like that of AI until there's not an inhabitant left, it will not be because the Lord has changed his mind since the days of gentle Jesus. It will be because he is the same yesterday and today and forever. A God who hates sin and who even in this New Testament portion of his plan when he's redeeming for himself a very colored church from every tribe and tongue and people and nation still reserves the right to pour out judgment on idolaters. And yet, because we do live in this 
New Testament portion of God's plan. Because we do live in this era after Christ's coming and before his coming again in vengeance, a door is thrown wide open to us that in times of old was usually only cracked. When Joshua's men came to Ai, there was an opening of mercy and redemption for one family, for the family of Rahab. But today, God commands the preaching of the gospel to every family on the earth, without exception and without limitation, doesn't he? And so, while we deserve God's judgment, both as individuals and as a nation, and while we will someday surely receive it if we do not repent, today, the people of God don't stand outside the city gates or go into the workplaces of Metro Cincinnati to execute God's judgments like Joshua. Today, we come to the city to proclaim God's Messiah who was born in Bethlehem, who died for sinners outside Jerusalem, who rose from the grave and sat down in heaven, and who is returning to this world once again and finally, yes, to execute God's judgments, but also to bring those who repent to the great and final land of promise. And I urge you to be among them this morning, to repent of your sin and flee to Christ for his mercy. When you read the book of Joshua and you wonder about all the wars, those are good questions. But what you should say to yourself is, unless I repent, I will likewise perish. Christ comes to you today, not in battle array as we find him in Joshua chapter 5, but with nail prints in his hands and with those hands stretched out in mercy to all who will receive him. And I urge you to do it. So you see, there is a difference between the Old Testament era and the New, and I hope you are thankful for it. But there were also good reasons in the sequence of God's plan of redemption and because of the wickedness of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, there were good reasons for God not only to have cleared the Canaanites from the promised land, but to have done so by the shedding of their blood. And someday Jesus will come again and do the same thing with every unrepentant sinner on every square inch of planet Earth. And so you mustn't drag your feet on repentance until this day of wide open mercy draws to a close and Christ once again girds on his sword and goes out conquering as the captain of the Lord's hosts. And he will. But behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And you need to take advantage. Now I've said all that concerning the book of Joshua in general. And we haven't yet come to read today's passage, so let's pause and pray for the Lord's help, and then let's turn this morning to Joshua chapter 9. Father, I've already uh, preached a little bit of a sermon in these last few minutes, and I pray that we'll heed it, both to understand why it is that there is bloodshed, so much of it in the book of Joshua, but also to understand how it speaks to us and how Christ whose name in the original is Joshua, is coming to execute your judgments again and to clear the whole earth of its idolaters. Help us, Lord, to take this to heart and to be glad that he has come the first time and that we live in this era where the door of mercy is thrown wide open to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Help us in this nation, in this room, to take advantage and not to drag our feet. And help us now as we open Joshua 9 to be sensitive to what else you have to say to us today from your word in this book. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have a look today at Joshua chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 15. Joshua 9, 1 through 10, 15. But we're going to break up our reading into three different parts and make three different observations. So we'll begin now by reading a portion that we might entitle, A Lack of Discernment, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 15, A Lack of Discernment. Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and on all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite heard of it, namely when they had heard what had happened uh, at Ai and at Jericho, 
that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. When the inhabitants of Gabaon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. They went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. This our bread was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and has become crumbled. These wineskins which we filled were new, and behold, they are torn, and these our clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Now these men acted craftily and said all these things and made all of this show to make it look like they'd come from a long way away. But if you look up where this place, Gibeon, is located, it's right smack in the middle of the Promised Land, just a little ways north, less than a day's journey north of Jerusalem. And we can say what we will about the Gibeonites and how shrewd they were and how we may have tried the same sort of chicanery had we been in their sandals. But none of that is really a part of the passage. We're not supposed to read this and go, wow, aren't the Gabeonites smart? The point of this passage is that Israel, who were the people of God and who had the clear word of God not to allow any of the Canaanites or the Hivites or any of the other peoples of the promised land to live, the Israelites who had been told to utterly clear the land of the wicked pagans who lived upon it, the point of the passage is how these people who ought to have known better got suckered duped, tricked into entering an agreement with these Hivites that prevented them doing what God had expressly commanded them to do. Joshua and his men showed an incredible lack of discernment here. They knew, according to verse 7, that they needed to be careful about being conned, but they were impressed with the Halloween costumes of these pagans. They saw their worn-out jackets and their beat-up shoes and the moldy bread that they brought in their hands, and they believed the manipulators. They believed the con men. And all of this, of course, may sound familiar to some of us because some of us have been snookered by people somewhere along the way as well. Some of us have had the wool pulled over our eyes, maybe not in matters this serious, but some of us have had family members or friends or co-workers who are ever so good at manipulating The Gabeonites were not stupid, were they? They didn't just show up in the Israelite camp with a lie to tell, but looking like they'd only been traveling for half a day. No, they went digging around in their old junk drawers, maybe rummaging around in the town trash heap, digging up ratty old robes and busted up sandals, and they had their wives bake bread well in advance so they could leave it lying on the counter for a few weeks and let it dry out and become unedible. And they set themselves up to pull off a really good charade. And that's how con men and con women roll today, isn't it? They're usually quite intelligent and they lay their plans out quite craftily. And we need to be warned here against their tactics and be people of discernment. 
And if any of us are among the number of the con men sneaking around manipulating other people, we need to be ashamed of ourselves. And we need to begin walking in the ways of God. But what I really want to say to you, and what I believe is one of the most central applications of this chapter, is that Satan is a con man too. I know there are people in our lives who will do everything they can to try and squeeze things out of us by way of dupe and manipulation, but Satan all the more is trying to deceive us and to play on our lack of discernment in matters far more important than the loan of a few 20s. Satan is trying to dupe us, as happened to the Israelites in the matter of Gabeon. He's trying to dupe us into ignoring and or breaking the very word of God. That's what happened to the Israelites, isn't it? By means of the deception of the people of Gabeon, the Israelites didn't just lose a little bit of money or a little bit of face. They painted themselves into a corner from which they could no longer honor the express commandment of God to clear the land. And Satan loves to put such paintbrushes into our hands. And the less discernment we have, the more easily we back ourselves into those corners. But what sorts of things specifically am I talking about? How does Satan deceive us? I'm thinking, for instance, of how Satan has employed modern media and education, which we are often too naive to question. How he employs the spokesmen of our society on television, in the news, and the local boards of education, and so on, to slip into the minds of undiscerning people, people all manner of lies concerning the origins of human life, and the ethics of sexuality, and the meaning of family, and the pursuit of happiness, and the way out of depression, and so on, and some of us are listening to them. And Satan is good at this. He doesn't dress up his mouthpieces like snake oil salesmen, does he? He often gives them lots of letters behind their names and amazing graphics on their web pages and positions of authority in society and studio audiences adulating over every word that they say and household names for sponsors in the commercial breaks. Just like the Gabeonites, had all their ducks in a row to make their story sound as plausible as possible so that the Israelites would listen to what they were being told and not turn and listen to what God had already said. And we do the same thing and we buy in. What do we buy into? Well, I mean the way, for instance, that many churchgoers can more easily spout the platitudes of Oprah or Dr. Phil or The View then they can recite, for instance, the lament psalms of the Holy Bible or give a coherent explanation of the doctrine of the Trinity. Some of us know far more about the world's wisdom and about how to make ourselves feel better and love ourselves than we do about what the Bible says because we're listening to all the wrong people. And when I think about a lack of discernment, I mean the fact that someone like Joel Osteen can actually masquerade as a Christian teacher. I mean the way Christians really believe the stories and buy the books of people who have allegedly gone to heaven and back, even though Jesus explicitly says in Luke 19 that such stories are of no avail to us. I mean the way many Christian women have bought the lies of the feminist movement so as to give priority to all sorts of things outside the home, which whether they like it or not, severely handicap their ministry, God-given ministry, inside the home. And the way so many of us raise our children with the exact same priorities of our unbelieving neighbors concerning entertainment, academic achievement at all costs, sports as a driving force behind everything, and don't soberly consider where such values have left our country over the last three or four decades. Many of us would agree that America is growing riper and riper for judgment, but we keep following like lemmings the short-sighted priorities of all the people who are pushing the land toward that cliff. And we've bought into Satan's deceptions too in the way that so many Christians get so excited about a Christian athlete or artist that they suddenly think that athletic talent or musical ability qualifies that person to be a Christian spokesman and thereby to become a teacher of the church. Or the way we sometimes buy into political party lines, both right and left, and treat them as though they are doctrines as foundational to our well-being as Sunday church. 
It's one of the great banes of the modern church, and I think not only in America, but in so many other places where we've exported our shallow gospel, this incredible lack of discernment, the ease with which people who tell a good story can dupe us. And these are the schemes of the devil. And I call them the schemes of the devil on purpose because while sometimes the talking heads who hash their worldly wisdom upon us are doing so as con men themselves. In other words, sometimes they know what they're doing and know that they're deceiving, but very often they're the ones being conned as well. Like the Roman soldiers at Jesus' crucifixion, they're complicit in Satan's work, yes, but they do not know what they are doing. But Satan knows, and he's good at deceiving us, and he's the father of the lies that we are being told. How... You tell a lie from the truth. Because, I mean, the Gabeonites had their story together, complete with props. And Satan has even better props and better costumes than they did. And so, how do we go about being more discerning? How do we avoid being snookered by all the falsehoods that are so dressed up well in our culture and that so easily entangle the culture at large? Well, what do we learn from Joshua chapter 9? Is there something in Israel's failure, some mistake they made that we can learn from? Well, there's a big one in verse 14, isn't there? So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. The men of Israel did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. They did not pray. They did not cast lots, as sometimes they might have done. They did not consult the priests or the Urim and Thummim, as God had made provision specifically for Joshua to do in Numbers chapter 27 when he had a question about the mind of the Lord. They didn't do any of the things that ought to have been second nature to them as the people of God when they made decisions such as this one. They knew, according to verse 7, that the Gabeonites might be playing them for fools. They knew they needed wisdom and counsel, in other words, but they settled for the words and the costumes of the pagan Gabeonites And they did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And I say to you, that is almost always our problem today, isn't it? God hasn't given us Urim and Thummim. He hasn't given us precious gems, in other words, on the breastplate of a priest, whereby we may know his will in a given matter. But in all the areas that I just mentioned, where Christians are allowing themselves to be led around by the nose, by the spiritually blind, in all the areas I just mentioned, where Christians are falling for all sorts of worldly wisdom and suffering great spiritual loss because of it, in all these areas, God has given us something even better than the Urim and the Thummim because his holy, infallible, inspired word speaks loudly and clearly to all the various areas where Christians are currently walking around aimlessly like blindfolded children playing party games. And yet so often our problem is that we do not ask for the counsel of the Lord. We do not open our Bibles as we should, many of us. And so we're intrigued by the talking heads on the front end because we can't recognize that they're talking nonsense from the beginning. And then that never occurs to us at many points along the way, even when we've begun to listen to what we're being told, it never occurs to us, many of us, to test what we're hearing, to test cultural norms that we've always presumed upon against the unfailing wisdom of the Word of God. And sometimes I think, frankly, that even if it does occur to us to test the spirits, we kind of like the worldly wisdom that we're being fed. It goes down smooth, and so it's just easier to go with. Nearly everybody thinks this way, right? It's on television. The news people are telling me that it's so. And so it can't be wrong. They can't all be wrong, can they? Last words of the spiritually gullible. This is one of our greatest problems as a contemporary church, and it's one of the great problems that some of us have sitting in the pews this morning. We don't know how to smell a rat. And the reason is because we don't know our Bibles like we should. And we're not discerning enough to know that about ourselves. And so we just believe what the TV tells us and we just keep doing what we see the culture doing around us. Even though we talk about how sad it is that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we keep walking down the road unquestionably holding her hand. There's much more that can be said here. 
And I want you to take it to heart without me saying much more. We need to move on with the passage at hand, but some of us are incredibly foolish in who we listen to and what we believe. And it's because we don't consult the word of God. Let it suffice to say before we go on, the great failure of the Israelites is alive and kicking today in an incredible lack of discernment made possible because, verse 14, they did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. But now we need to go on, and in chapter 9, verse 16, through chapter 10, verse 11, we need also to notice a show of integrity. A great lack of discernment by the Israelites, but also a great show of integrity. Read with me beginning in verse 16. It came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors and that they were living within their land. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gebeon and Shepharah and Beeroth and Kiriath-Jearim. The sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, We have sworn to them by the word or by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live, so that wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. The leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you are living within our land? Now therefore you are cursed, and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gebeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly because Gebeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoam, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gebeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel." So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they with all their armies encamped by Gabaon and fought against it. Then the men of Gabaon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal, and the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gabaon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. As they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So the Israelites let the Gabeonites go, and they even came to their aid in this matter of war. And we may ponder... If Israel did the right thing here, after all, the oath that they made to the Gabeonites was made under a cloud of deception, and now, in order to keep that oath, they would have to bypass God's command to destroy all the peoples and nations in their path. 
So were Joshua and his fellow leaders right to spare the men of Gibeon? Or would they have been, would have been within their rights to have reneged on their promise, either because they'd been tricked into it or particularly because to have kept it would have left them unable to fully fulfill the command of God? It's not an easy question, it seems to me. That is to say that if we ourselves found ourselves being duped into a bad contract, or especially if we ourselves promised something to other people that would render us unable to fulfill a commitment to God, I'm not sure that we would always be required or even that it would be advisable for us to do what the Israelites did here and to follow through on a foolishly made promise. Not always. And so we have to ask, why did the Israelites go through with this? Why did they keep this foolish promise and were they right to do it? Well, I think the clear answer is that they were right to keep their oath to the Gabeonites. And I think that becomes clear, not mainly when Joshua spares them in chapter 9, but we see that he made the right decision when he goes out to war on their behalf here in chapter 10. Because did you notice in verse 8 how the Lord encouraged Joshua to come to Gabeon's aid? The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands and not... One of them shall stand before you concerning the kings who were attacking Gabeon. The Lord encouraged Joshua to come to their aid. And then in verses 10 and 11, the Lord fought for Israel in this defense of their neighbors. We've already seen in the matter of Ai that the Lord reserved the right to withdraw his help from Israel when there was sin in the camp. But here in the matter of Joshua's aid to Gibeon, the Lord doesn't withdraw his help. He actually promises his help in verse 8 and then gives it in verses 10 and 11. And this seems to me as though it is God's stamp of approval on the way Israel kept their word and defended the men of Gibeon. God blessed that decision. And so it was the right thing that the Israelites did. But again, we should ask, would it always be right to keep our oaths to men, even if in doing so we are prevented from fully obeying God? I've already said I don't think that we always should do that. But why do I say that? Is there something in this story that clues us in on why it was that Israel needed to keep this particular oath, even though doing so meant that they could not thoroughly clear away the Canaanites as God had initially instructed them to do? There's something in this story that tells us why this was the right decision, even though sometimes we must obey God rather than fulfilling our commitments to men. Well, I think the answer comes in verse 18 when we are told that the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The sons of Israel did not strike them. Here's why. Because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. So do you see? It's not just the Israelites made a neighborly promise to Gabeah, nor even that they signed their names on a contract, serious as both of those levels of commitment are. It's that they actually signed God's name on the contract, as it were. They had sworn to them by the Lord. They had brought God's reputation into this matter. And so to renege on this promise would not only have been unneighborly and politically inauspicious, but it would have been a black mark over the name of their God. Now we may argue that the Gabeonites would have had no right to criticize Israel or their God given the underhanded way in which they'd arranged this treaty, but... That's not evidently how the Israelite leaders viewed it in chapter 9, verse 18. They had sworn by the Lord, and now they were going to keep that promise made in his name with the highest integrity. Now, again, the Israelites had put themselves into this awkward position of having to choose between either breaking God's command about clearing the promised land of idolaters or breaking their own oath made in his name. And so one lesson here is to heed Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and be very hesitant to bring the name of God into your oaths, many of which may prove to be foolish. 
Rather, you should simply speak in simple yes or no terms, Jesus says. Don't put yourself in a position like this. But once that horse was out of the barn, once the Israelites had let it out, once it had been determined that this was an oath which they must keep at all costs, what I want you to see is simply that Joshua and his leadership were men of their word. Here in this chapter is a great show of integrity. And I want to urge you to imitate it in your own life. I've alluded to the fact that it may sometimes be right to default on a promise, particularly if doing so means breaking the law of God or following through on it means breaking the law of God. But those exceptions, I want to say to you now, are few and far between. And we really shouldn't spend a lot of time trying to imagine the exceptional scenarios. Rather, we should study to be like Joshua and the leaders of Israel, absolutely faithful to the bond of our word and willing to follow through even when we've promised hastily like Joshua did, even when it puts us in an awkward position like Joshua found himself in. And we should keep our word even when keeping it requires a lot more work than we originally anticipated like the battle that Joshua found himself in in chapter 10. He made a covenant with these people thinking they lived far away and that it probably, A, wouldn't break the command of God, and B, it wouldn't require such a thing as going off to war only a few days later. But Joshua kept his promise, foolish though it was, and the leaders of Israel proved men of their word, and I want you to be the same a man or a woman of your word, and especially so in promises like your wedding vows and your signature on the church covenant where you have brought the name of the Lord into your oaths. And so the Israelites give us both a positive and a negative example here in this whole matter of Gabeon, a lack of discernment, which is troubling, and a show of integrity, which is praiseworthy, and we must learn from both. And then in the third and final place, we need to not only see a lack of discernment and a show of integrity, but also we need to see in this passage at the end, a day like no other. Read with me chapter 10, verses 10 through 15. A day like no other. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gabeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda, As they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gabeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp to Gilgal. Now, if you were to ask me which miracle in the Bible most tests my faith, I think it might be this incident of the sun standing still at Gabeon. In other words, it's one thing to conceive of God aiming individual hailstones at individual soldiers so precisely as to take out these fleeing pagan warriors It is one thing to wrap your mind around the parting of the Red Sea or the crossing of the Jordan on dry ground or the fish swallowing Jonah or the feeding of 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. None of those things are easily acceptable to our natural human mindsets. But at least these miracles were localized. We can conceive of them perhaps as taking place in some corner of the world. But here in Joshua 10 is a miracle that would have literally stopped the whole planet. We all talk about the sun rising and setting, even though we know that it's actually the earth that moves, not the sun. And the Bible freely uses the same colloquial ways of speaking about the sun that we do, rising, setting, and in this case, standing still. 
even though what it likely means, if we put it in scientific terms, is that the earth stopped rotating on its axis that day, which is just as much of a miracle. Whatever the language you want to use for this phenomenon, though, whether you use the colloquial language or the scientific language, this is one of the most astonishing miracles in all the Bible. Joshua prays and the earth ceases its rotation so that the sun stays in the sky, in the middle of the sky, for 24 hours, verse 13. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And the moon ceased its revolution around the earth as well, according to verse 13. And I say to you, a passage like this will reveal to you about as well as any I know whether you believe that the God of the Bible is all-powerful and that he intervenes in the affairs of planet Earth or whether you're more of a practical deist, thinking of the Earth something like a clock that its maker has wound up and set in motion but who never interferes with the turning of its hands. This is an amazing miracle affecting the entire planet. Do you believe it? That God altered the very motions of the solar system that day, that he made the sun to stand still, the moon to pause in its orbit so that Israel could sweep the battlefield of her enemies. I hope you believe it. This was a day like no other, says verse 14. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now that verse is not teaching, of course, that God had never listened to the voice of a man at all before that day in the valley of Ijalon. We know from the first five books of the Bible that that's not what this verse means. But what verse 14 is saying is that never before had God responded so astoundingly to the voice of a man. Never had he done a miracle like this in answer to prayer. And at least in the time it took for this book of Joshua to be written, never had he done it again since. And so we probably shouldn't expect God to make the sun stand still on a regular basis. That's at least part of what verse 14 seems to be teaching. This was a miracle of miracles. This was a day like no other. This was a unique event, even in the grand history of unique events that God did for his people. And since that is what this little portion of the book of Joshua teaches that this was a day like no other, we might be tempted to just pause here for a few minutes as we have done and to kind of ooh and ah over this one-time miracle like no other miracle, but to think, well, since this was a day like no other, since it was such a unique and one-time occurrence, this miracle probably hasn't very much to say about the day-to-day of our own lives. God's probably not going to do this in my lifetime. It had never happened before. It's not likely that God will ever do it again. And so we can admire it, but we may think we can't do very much with it as far as contemporary application. But I think we shouldn't move on quite so quickly. Because while God's answer to Joshua's prayer was indeed a miracle of miracles and one that we shouldn't expect to see regularly duplicated, if ever, what this miracle has to say to us in more general terms is that God does intervene in the world. Not always like this, but he does intervene in the world. And he does answer prayer. Not always exactly like this, but he does hear. And he does fight for his people. Not always like he did at Gebeon, but he does fight for his people. It's true that God had never intervened quite so startling as that day outside Gebeon. But he had intervened in the lives of his people outside the walls of Jericho on the banks of the Jordan River, when their backs were against the walls of the Red Sea, when the plagues fell on Egypt, when the manna fell from heaven, and on and on we could go. And God has intervened in the lives of His people in manifold ways since that time, as we discover on the rest of the pages of Scripture, and in the pages of history since the close of the Scriptures, and on the pages of our own personal testimonies, we can say that God intervenes. And so what we should see when we watch the sun standing still at Gabeon is not so much an anomaly in God's normal order of things, but more like an exclamation point in the midst of a whole series of God's intervention in the lives of His people. In other words... 
We shouldn't read about the sun standing still and conclude that the uniqueness of the miracle means it has nothing to say to us. We should rather read it as just one of the most shining examples of how God is always at work, answering prayer and intervening in the affairs of men in order to work his will and do his people good. I hope I'm communicating this as well as I want to. The sun standing still is surely unique among God's interventions in the affairs of men, but it is not unique that God should intervene in the affairs of men. And so when we read this story, as I say, we don't treat it as an anomaly, but more, as I said, like an exclamation point in God's normal dealings with the race of men, such that if I can believe God did something as grand as this, Surely I need entertain no doubts as to whether he can do whatever it is that I might need this week. He doesn't intervene every day to change the rotation of the earth, but God is in the business of intervening for good in the lives of his people. That's why we pray, isn't it? Not because we expect that God will do in response to our voices exactly what he did for Joshua, but because we do expect that he will do for us what is good and what is best, and what is according to his will, and sometimes, as Paul said, beyond all that we ask or think. And it's along those lines that it is good to know that God can literally move heaven and earth if that is what is required to do his good will. And so this miracle is not an anomaly, it's an exclamation point. And I want you... If you want an even bigger exclamation point concerning the willingness of God to intervene in our lives for good, if you want one miracle even more astounding than the halting of the earth's rotation on its axis, I want you then to just take with me about a day's walk south from Gibeon to a little town called Bethlehem where you will see the God for whom the solar system is like a drop from a bucket having taken on human flesh and human nature and lying in the person of his son on a bed of straw. That, if we understand even a fraction of the nature of God, is even more earth-stopping than the way God answered prayer that day at Gibeon. God has done for us beyond all that we could have asked or thought, hasn't he? And not only did God become incarnate, but he lived without sin and died for our sins and rose from the dead. And he's coming again someday to complete the redemption plan of which this book of Joshua is just an early part. And here in the person and work of Jesus is the greatest exclamation point of all in God's marvelous habit of intervening for our good. So I urge you to take heart and to have faith in this God who made the sun stand still at Gabeon and who made his son incarnate at Bethlehem. And if you can believe these two great exclamation points, you'll never have cause to doubt that God can intervene for you today. For he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things.